Ten seconds left in the game. First and ten for the Purple Raiders, and it's a handle over the middle to Jake Simmons! Touchdown! Touchdown! 35! Purple Raiders score! Five seconds left in the game, the Purple Raiders take the lead. 41 to 35! Wow! Jake Simon, what a gutsy call! Right there! That is how you call a football game. Expecting the pass with less than 10 seconds to go, handing off on the draw play to Jake Simon right up the middle. That is a gutsy call and a beautiful call at that. Yeah, I was hoping that ball would end up somewhere near the middle. So if we, I think we had one timeout left, we could use it and kick a field goal. But it, it worked even better than that, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. It's the play we, yeah. we ran consistently all day. and It was stopped many times. But that time it was... I told them uh, how proud I am of them, how grateful I am for them, and a year ago we were sitting in a locker room uh, crying, and I was crying this time because I'm a crier, but uh, different tears, and I told them a story about last year, after the game I had an opportunity to go down to the national championship game, and uh, I went down there the week after we lost. Whitewater, and we were blessed to have Fritz uh, as finalist for the player of the year. And I sat down there for three days and I took it all in, and it hurt. It hurt. And all I kept thinking about was how much of a failure I was because I didn't have an opportunity to share that experience with the other 58 guys. Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, the 10th of December 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And here we go. We are down to our final two teams for the Amos Alonzo Stag Bowl, Stag Bowl 40. And the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets are on sale now at www.salemciviccenter.com. And for most of you, by the time you hear this, the uh, box office will be open. They will be selling tickets on site as well as we get ready for uh, the 40th Stag Bowl. The 20th in Salem, the 16th to feature Mount Union. And, Keith, what a what a fantastic game that was between Mount Union and Mary Harden-Baylor. Well-deserving, I would think, of uh, a game between number one and number two in the country. Yeah, it lived up to the billing. And I think it will go down in history. In fact, I'll, I'll, I know it will go down in history as one of the great semifinals, maybe one of the great games in, in Division Three history. When you think about – or when we think about the the – Games we've seen, the great semifinals in the, we call it the Mount Union era, the Salem era, right? It started in 1993. Um, you know, there, there have been a handful of them, but I think of the, the Rowan Mount Union one in 99 that, that had the, uh, the upset or, or, you know, the, the overtime. And uh, I think of the Rowan and Bridgewater because of the way that ended. But this one, I think, is, is right up there with the great ones. And part of it was context because Mount Union was the team that was on the ropes and had to come back and, uh, and win, although when they scored the, uh, the winning touchdown with five seconds left, uh, it was actually a tie game at that point, and they were appearing to set up for a, a game-winning field goal attempt. But they trailed in that game by two touchdowns in the second half. They, uh, they trailed 35-28, even at, at, at the point where they rallied. Uh, from 28-14 in the second half, tied it at 28, then gave up another touchdown. Mountain Union had five turnovers on the day. And so, um, you know, the, the the context of the game with uh, Mary Harden-Baylor having been the only team to go up to Alliance and, and win in a uh, in a semifinal, and that's one of the great semifinals of the past, you know, 10, 20 years as well. Um, the context set it up to be a great game, but we didn't really know if it was going to live up to the billing. There's so many times 
where where these games look good in the playoffs and then one team dominates the other. And, and Mary Harden Baylor had dominated teams all season. Mount Union had dominated teams all season. But when these two got together, it really was, um, for the most part, blow for blow. I, I think the teams got a matchup physically, speed-wise, that they they hadn't gotten all season. And it lived up to the billing and the drama. And you, you, we saw something um, that proved that it was it was a big game in in Mount Union lore because uh, the Purple Raiders and their fans stormed the field, and there's so many games in Alliance, basically four games a year in Alliance in the playoffs, and it's almost kind of ho hum for them because these great teams come in, they'll be undefeated, 12 and 0, 13 and 0, come in and, and get wiped off the field. This time, you know the the fans, the players could tell that that Mount Union had met its match in a lot of ways in that game, and they needed. To, to coach in a way that they, they don't coach mostly during the season. They needed to play in a way. They needed to dig deep and, and rally for that victory. In a lot of ways, it, it was like the Mount Union-Whitewater Stag Bowls. And, and for we probably, you know, depending on what happens this week, we may look back and say this game should have been the Stag Bowl. And you could hear in that uh, in that clip from uh, Steve Candre and Ryan Smith of WRMU just the excitement in a uh, – in, in their voices, but also, you know, the watching on uh, watching online, not on TV, of course. The uh, the the fan reaction, as you mentioned, the fan storm the field. It's, it's just a uh, um, you know something, a, a type of celebration that Mountain Union fans don't necessarily get to do in their home stadium. Not very often. I mean, they're they're you know they can probably recount on their on their hands, you know, how many great great games they've had in that stadium that have come down to the final play or in this case you know the the it was the second to last play because the final play um was the mary harden baylor lateral that was returned by matt matt fetchko for an extra touchdown but but for all intents and purposes it was a seven point game jake simon scored the the game winning touchdown with five seconds left um, on, on a play where the middle just opened wide up because it looked like mary harden baylor was lined up wide uh, either expecting a pass and they were and they had their defensive ends and their linebackers uh, wide on the play and trying to get a rush and um it was his shotgun to burke he handed it to simon up the middle and, and, and simon scored from 12 yards untouched um you know, there's so many sub so much subtext so many side stories to the way mount union won this game you know there are a lot of great performances by seniors in this game um and, and on the final drive but but kevin burke the quarterback as a sophomore and 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 he, you know, he played with great poise. The play right before the uh, the game-winning play was a 15-yard scramble. I think it was supposed to be a pass. He uh, rolled out to his right and uh, you know broke a couple of uh, tackles. And uh, and then Mount Union let the clock run, and he was calm. And they ran a play. Uh, you know, in hindsight, it kind of made sense that they ran a play in the middle to set it up and uh, and, and potentially kick the game-winning field goal. But they ended up scoring a touchdown. But to go back to to how you set the the question up, I think. There are very few games for Mountain Union fans. They, the, the one thing about them being so dominant is that they don't get to experience this the way most of the rest of Division Three does, you know, two, three, four, five times a year, having these games that are decided by one score. The Purple Raiders this season hadn't had any games close at all. You know, 33-14 Heidelberg was maybe the closest uh, of all their games. They hadn't had a close playoff game. And this one, you could tell very early on, even though Mountain Union scored first, and, 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 you know, things looked maybe a little bit easy at the beginning of the first quarter. You could tell by the end of the first quarter this was going to be a back-and-forth one all day. And I, and I know Mountain Union kept it in, kept May Harden-Baylor in the game with their turnovers, but at the same time, 
they weren't all giveaway turnovers. Some of them were, were certainly earned. The, uh, the Javis Jones interception, the, the Broder Crane uh, interception return for a touchdown. Those were great plays by the defense, not just bad plays by Mountain Union. Well, that takes uh, – you were about to – uh, segue right into my next question, and then you kind of answered it. But my, yeah, my next question was: so many people are talking about the five turnovers, and obviously they led to uh, pretty much directly to all of the Mary Harden Baylor points, if I uh, remember correctly. How, how? And you kind of touched on it a little bit. How many of them were forced? How many of them were unforced? Uh, I, I would go three and two to answer that question. I think the two that I mentioned were were great plays by the Mary Harden Baylor defense, and then there was a, a um, Blair. Uh, fumbled late in the game, and he also mishandled that that set up a very easy touchdown for Mary Harden Baylor, and uh, he was the one who actually scored the tying touchdown. So that was sort of a nice redemption for him. He scored the touchdown that made it 35 all. Um, but he had two big turnovers: one a muff punt, one fumble, and then T.J. Lattimore, who had fumbled earlier in the playoffs, also fumbled early in the game. And even though you can make the point that that Mary Harden Baylor um, scored all five of their their touchdowns off turnovers, they weren't all set up short drives you know one of the turnovers was you know was still about 70 yards away and Mary Harden Baylor uh Ladero Bailey hit a big pass to Caleb Moore and 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 then it became a you know an easy score for them but um Mary Harden Baylor did have some some short drives but I think just because you get turnovers doesn't mean you get seven off of every turnover you know sometimes a team will have four or five turnovers and get 10 points or 13 points out of it, you know, a touchdown and a couple of field goals. Mary Harden Baylor turned every one of those turnovers into touchdowns. And I think when you look at how these two teams matched up physically, how they played, uh, you know, along the lines for the better part of the game, they matched up physically and, and, and it wasn't a case of Mountain Union blowing Mary Harden Baylor away. They, Mountain Union certainly had the yardage advantage. Certainly, if they hadn't turned it over five times, it, it would have been a different game. But I don't think that that this is a case where if they had played that game without the turnovers, that that Mountain Union would have run away with it. And you talked about how Mary Harden Baylor had to capitalize and, and get seven on each of those turnovers. When we talk about the uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh St. Thomas game, we'll we'll talk about an exact opposite situation where Oshkosh did not capitalize on St. Thomas turnovers. Um, so. You're watching online as much as you can. I'm at the St. Thomas Oshkosh game, so um, yeah, there were some stretches of that game where, first of all, uh, it was um, there were a there were a, a I was I was going to say there was a fair amount. Actually, I think it was probably almost an unfair amount of video reviews. We had a lot of stoppages of play. We had a couple of injuries, and we had halftime and a a, a kind of uh, uh, and, a, and a basically a scoreless almost a scoreless second quarter while most of this is going on. So I'm watching. Um, watching Mountain Union, Mary Harden, Baylor on my screen as much as I can, and uh, my uh, my recollections from seeing bits and pieces here and there may not necessarily match up with you know the the reality of the game and seeing it in full or seeing long stretches of it. So here's here's my thought, and um, you know I I was watching a, I guess a span of probably about the third quarter or so, uh, and it looked to me like. Uh, I mean, you you talked about Kevin Burke being poised at the end of the game. I thought middle middle of the game he did not look particularly poised. He was he was missing receivers. He was I don't know if he was struggling with um, you know the defensive pressure or you know if the you know if, uh, if the game was getting to him or if his uh, dif if his receivers were closely covered downfield or if you know to be honest with you I'm seeing one snap here and then I'm seeing uh, you know another snap two or three minutes later and I'm completely missing it. 
Well, Burke didn't have a, a terrible game, but I also don't think he had a, a great game. He was 20 of 33, uh, three touchdown passes, two interceptions. He you know, ran the ball typically well. He, he tends to be a, a good runner, especially when they use the read option and, and give him a chance to keep the ball. Uh, 18 carries is a lot for some quarterbacks, but for, for Kevin Burke, that's not uh, too far out of, it, out of his range. Of course, he doesn't normally have to play all four quarters as hard as he had to play. And, and I think that's the big takeaway, that um, – some of it was just the speed of, of Mary Harden Baylor and, and Burke facing more pressure than he had has normally faced all season. And I don't think that's something that he's he's unequipped to handle. It just means there, there was a team on the other side of the ball where, you know, there was there was a sack by uh, by Mary Harden Baylor's Perez at one play, a defensive tackle, where he just he bull rushes a uh, the the Mountain Union offensive lineman, I think it was Maddox, and then just, you know, slides off him and sacks Burke. And that's something that that for the most part during the season, you, you don't see defensive linemen bull rush the Mount Union offensive line. Mount Union's offensive line manhandles the, the, whoever they're playing. And so this was just a case of, uh, of Mount Union meeting its match in some ways. And, and I, I think the line play showed it. There were a lot of running plays that Mary Harden Baylor ran where they, they opened up wide open holes. In the, in the middle of, of the, uh, the, the Mount Union defense, and that's something the Mount Union defense wasn't used to. But when you, you turn around and look at the fourth quarter of that game, Mount Union was the one who was dominating the line play, who opened up the wide open holes on the final drive and kept the bodies off Burke. And so even though it, it was a concern going into the game, remember we talked about last week on the podcast you know, Mountain Union not having had to play hard for four quarters all season, would that would that be a problem for them when they had to dig deep? They answered that question. They had to dig deep and and play uh, their best football in the fourth quarter, and they did. They had 34 points in the fourth. Another fantastic afternoon and early evening by Jasper Collins, 11 catches for 200 yards and a pair of touchdowns. Um, how did Collins look on Saturday? Yeah, I thought that was his best game. And and we, we'd seen him – you know, for years now, be part of the Mountain Union offense, and we've seen him sort of be in more of a support role when Shorts was the star, and um, he he's emerged into into a star this year. But I think these playoffs, he's really taken off. He had the five touchdown game two rounds ago, and then on Saturday, eleven catches for two hundred yards, uh, a real big key catch on the final drive. I think it was third and six, and he went for eighteen, got the ball down to the two yard line, and Mount Union was able to punch it in. So I guess that's the drive before the final drive. But but you know, he was the go to guy for Burke, and that's part of the reason why Burke looked poised in the fourth quarter is because you know when he had to make a big play. Those big plays went to Jasper Collins, and Collins made really every key catch that he needed to make. And it was it was polished route running. It was getting open against the zone, um, getting open against a man. He was able to um, you know to use his speed to threaten the the defensive backs, and then break on these on these routes. And Burke, his throws were right there. I mean, it, and that's something that you just the the, the tempo, the speed with which Mary Harden, Baylor, and Mount Union play is is uncommon in Division Three. It's just a little bit crisper and a little bit faster than everyone else. And I thought Jasper Collins, for the most part, was a little bit crisper and a little bit faster than uh, than the defensive backs he was matched up with. Not to say that Mary Harden Baylor's defensive backs didn't have a, a big game because uh, there was obviously the Broder Crane pick six and there were some other big plays made in the secondary. But when when Mountain Union needed Collins to to make a big catch, he made it over and over again. You talk about the speed of the game and, and some of the comments going out, uh, you know, among the, the commentary about people from people watching the game was, you know, watching this game and seeing 
how it looked like a real game, a real college football game, so to speak. That's how they put it. You know, obviously every game is a real college football game to us, but that it looked like, you know, a, a game that you would typically see on ESPN in terms of, you know, size of players, speed, skill, that sort of thing. And, and I think we saw maybe four players that, that have a chance to play on Sundays. And, and, and right now there are three uh, Mountain Union, actually four if you count Kyle Miller. Uh, there, there are three Mountain Union guys in the NFL, and there's a, there's a Mary Harden-Baylor guy in the NFL. But th- two, two very significant ones in Pierre Garçon, Cecil Shorts, and um, Jarrell Freeman, who, who the Indianapolis Colts linebacker, who's from Mary Harden-Baylor. And, and actually Nate Mankin, who's on the Eagles practice squad, is also from Mary, Harden, uh, Mary Harden-Baylor. Actually, so, I think Mankin was on the active roster at some point, too, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, and, and so, so basically the point I'm trying to make with that is it's not completely uncommon for, for top-notch college football talent to be in either of these two. And I, on Saturday, we definitely saw um, players who are going to get a shot. Jasper Collins is at the top of the list. Nick Driscoll from, from Mount Union, the safety, is going to get a shot. Charles Diesel probably will get a shot. Uh, Javis Jones, I think, was best player on the field on Saturday from an NFL prospect standpoint. Um, just someone who, um, you know, maybe they'll make him into, a, I don't know if they'll make him into a safety or, or, or leave him as a, as a linebacker uh, NFL-wise, but he's got the speed, he's got the hitting, the hitting ability, he's got hands. Um, I, I, he's, gonna be, he's outstanding. I think he's going to have a chance to play on, on Sundays. Um, and so when you, when you say, it, or when somebody says it looks like a real college game, that's part of the reason because the top-notch players are there. But I think also to play in these programs, either one of these programs, you know, that's bringing in between 150 and 200 kids into camp every summer. It's just to play, just to be in the top 22 or 30 or 58 guys who make the playoff roster. You have to play with a certain speed. You have to play with a certain precision to just to impress the coaches, just to get on the field in, in a program where there's 200 kids. And so I think that alone makes the, the cream rise to the top and, and some to some degree is responsible for why these two teams are so good. Uh, key special teams play in the fourth quarter, and here is uh, Nick Driscoll from Mountain Union to talk about it. You know, special teams always plays a big part of the game. It's one-third of the game, as they say. Uh, and, uh, you know, we weren't actually going for the pump block, but I, I think that I don't, I'm not really sure what they were doing back there, if you tried to fake it for a second or what. But uh, I think it was Hank that came in with a, with a big block, and uh, Nigel recovering the end zone. Uh, you know, the, the game just swung at that point, you know. Defensively, you know, it's, it feels good. You know, most of the special team guys are on defense, so it kind of feels like a defensive, you know, play right there. So they just kind of swung for us, you know, and just kept kept playing. Watching that play, Keith, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that you, Chad Peavy saw the rush and decided to pull the ball down and try to do a rugby-style punt. Was that your take on that? That's uh, pretty much exactly what happened. He tried to run off to his right and get the kickoff and, and – but, you know, it actually made it worse because Mount Union was coming at that point. And uh, Hank Spencer was the one who blocked it. Nigel Thomas was the one who, who fell on it for the touchdown. And that sequence, it was 28-14 about two minutes before that happened. Uh, Mount Union finishes off uh, one of its best drives of the day with a, uh, a, a pass to, from Burke to Julius Moore. First play of the fourth quarter. And they, that made it a 28-21 game. Mount Union, uh, Mary Harden Baylor goes three and out, then gets the punt blocked. And... But that pump block team has now been a theme for for a couple of weeks now for Mount Union. Remember, they uh, they blocked a couple of punts against Widener, uh, and actually, you know, Nick Driscoll tackled the punter on another one. So they had just the punt the punt block team alone led to twenty points last week against Widener and led to a huge game time touchdown. This special teams 
was big for Mount Union, but remember one of the touchdowns for Mary Harden Baylor was set up by uh, by Blair Skilleter mishandling a punt. So uh, I guess that that pump block unit you know gave up seven and then got that seven back on on Saturday. And you know that that is I think it's a mark of of a program that that takes advantage of every opportunity to, to to make plays in these games. And again, it goes back to what we were just saying about, about having 200 kids in the program. These guys who are playing special teams and are playing bit parts for, for Mountain Union, they're hungry. I mean, they, they may not play, but, you know, special teams for two or three seasons. It's not like you, you just walk in, in Mountain Union and play right from your freshman year. You know, these guys, if they're getting opportunity, they know they have to take their role seriously because there's another 150 guys or 140 guys or, you know, whatever the number is that didn't even make the playoff roster that would love to take your job. And so they take it very seriously. And when they get a chance to make big plays on special teams, they've been able to do that in the playoffs. I want to talk about Ladarrell Bailey, the Mary Harden Baylor quarterback. He had a he had a really rough start to the game, passing wise at least. Um, if I, uh, I remember the graphic coming by at one point, he might have been three for his could have been three for his first eleven. Is that possible? But anyway, a a, a really a, a really bit of a struggling start to the game, and then he finally kind of figured things out. Yeah, you know, Ladarrell Bailey was somebody who was sort of a, a self had, had made himself over the course of his career into a touch passer, a precision passer, a, a quarterback who can, uh, you know, control the game with his arm as much as he he can running it. Because uh, Mary Hart Baylor's got the run base offense that usually use a couple of couple of backs, sometimes a, a faster running back and then a bruising running back, and then and then the quarterback keeps it, so they have three runners who wear teams down over the course of the game, and that was. To, to a degree, that was still their style this year because Bailey kept it a bunch on the option. Darius Wilson was sort of the speed back, and Elijah Hudson was, was the bruiser. But Bailey, you know, I think Mary Harden Baylor recognized one of the reasons they weren't advancing deeper into the playoffs, even though their teams were great in the regular seasons, because the, the quarterbacks weren't able to be um, really effective in the passing game. And Bailey had, had become, over the course of the season, you know, the, the second most efficient passer in the country. And a lot of his numbers, we talked about it over the season during the podcast, he would be 16 of 20, you know, 21 of 24. Th- those were the type of passing games he was having. And so I think it's a credit to the Mountain Union defense, to be quite honest, that, that he struggled a little bit on Saturday, but he did figure it out. He did hit a big pass play to Caleb Moore. Uh, you know, he, he converted some third downs that were key. Mary Harden Baylor didn't really have a great day on offense. Uh, you know the 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 big the bigger plays they made were really running the ball. They certainly didn't have a great day passing, and and you know we thought that was their weakness, but I don't think that was what did him in. I, I think you know part of it is is Mount Union just having a great defense and and Bailey not having a great day, and um you know they they were able to make the the plays when they needed to. The stats certainly weren't overwhelming, um but but they every time they got down in the red zone they punched it in for seven, and I think that says says almost as much about Ladarrell Bailey and the way uh, you know he he commanded that team and led that offense than than just gaudy numbers would have said. A couple minutes to talk about uh, Mary Harden Baylor for 2013, and then we'll move on to the uh, St. Thomas Oshkosh game. Um, you know, obviously Mary Harden Baylor loses uh, one of its uh, defensive standouts. We've already talked about him. They, they lose Bailey, a guy who you know, as you just said, kind of really developed over the course of his career. Um, if you look back at you know, kind of the 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 path, the arc of Mary Hart and Baylor. They, uh, you know, they they went to the Stag Bowl in 2004, and then they had a bunch of seasons where, um, yeah, they they lost a regular season game and they lost a playoff game, and then they lost just one game each of the past three years, including this season. Next season, they open a brand new stadium, one that 
you know, by by all designs, looks like it's going to be the uh, the the palace of Division Three football. But they're going to have to do some rebuilding on the field. It looks like. Yeah, well, anytime you lose a quarterback who who's played for you since he was a freshman, and uh, you know Jake Sims has, has been the backup there for a long time too. So they they've got they are to replace Bailey, they replace uh, Javis Jones, and, and they'll you know any team that gets this far is is going to have some key seniors and some key roles. But they also had some guys who I thought, especially defensively, started to emerge during the playoffs and played really well. Um, at Mount Union, and uh, you know, a number of those guys will be back defensively. You know, linebackers, secondary players, and the thing about a program like Mary Harden Baylor is, is again, with the number of people in the program and 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 the tradition of the program, and being able to recruit Texas as well as they have. Coach Fredenberg's been there for 15 years; he knows his way around the state, and, and, and they're they're bringing in kids by the by the busloads. Um, they're they're going to reload to a degree, and, and the story for Ma- for Mary Harden Baylor is sort of the same as it always is. You know, they're they're going to have to you know, win the American Southwest. They'll have to uh, beat Wesley, who who's going to be the team that's going to come and open up that stadium uh, in September, and that's a, that's another team that's uh, trying to reload in one of the top six programs in the country. So those two, you know, whoever whoever wins. Whoever gets out of that bracket next year is going to be the team that has a chance, you know, to go to Alliance or to go to Wisconsin or or, or Minnesota somewhere and and you know do damage in this semifinal round of the playoffs. I think Mary Harden Baylor will, will most likely be back. Uh, you know, Louisiana College certainly on the come up, but it, it's hard it's hard to imagine UMHB having a, a, a fall off to to such a huge degree where they won't be back in the playoffs because a lot of what they do is they're great players, but a lot of it is also that system and the way they run the ball, and, and that's not going to change just because the personnel changes. We're going to switch roles here a little bit. I, I mentioned that I was the one who was at the St. Thomas-Wisconsin Oshkosh game, and usually I'm the one asking questions of Keith, and Keith is giving his analysis. It's like I'm the play-by-play guy, and he's the color guy. Go figure, uh, which is what we'll be doing on uh, Stag Bowl 40 coming up on Friday night. But we're going to switch roles here, and Keith is going to uh, – Keith is going to ask me the questions and get uh, ask me his mine, uh, <laughs> obviously my take on the St. Thomas Oshkosh game and throw in what he th- thought about it as well and uh, things of, about how things are coming up. And Keith, why don't you take it away? Sure. Um, from the you know the from afar, I guess when we look, St. Thomas was the team that really wasn't all that flashy, and uh, and and Oshkosh was the team that was that played loose. They had a you know have falling behind in games and then rallying and it started at, at at a point on Saturday to look like even though St. Thomas had built that 21 to zero lead that that Oshkosh was going to get back in it but they really never got any rhythm offensively. How much of that do you attribute to the uh, to the St. Thomas defense? How much do you attribute to Nate Wera's broken pinky? Or what else would you, would you attribute the fact that Oshkosh really never got going offensively to? Yeah, and you know it's interesting, Keith. Um, when you when you think about it too, the 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 touchdown that they scored in the first half was really on a on a on a busted play or at least a busted coverage. Uh, so Nate Ware throws the ball uh, about I'd say about thirty yards downfield to Corey Whipperforth, and he underthrows it uh, out on the uh, out on the the the, the sideline to the right, out on his uh, throwing side. He underthrows it. Whipperforth has to come back and get the ball, and uh, Tyler Erstad, the guy who's uh, in coverage. Out on the boundary on Whipperforth just kind of misses misses the tackle, gets his gets his feet a little bit off balance, and Whipperforth is off to the races, and it's a it's a 77 yard touchdown. Uh, so that's a you know a 92 play or 92 yard drive at uh, 77 comes of it on one play. Um, you know I I think that 
you know, to be honest with you, especially later in the game, when uh, when Wera was when it was clear that Wera was was going to throw, because uh, you know, basically uh, St. Thomas hadn't allowed Oshkosh to do pretty much anything on the ground, and uh, Oshkosh pretty much just abandoned it in the fourth quarter. At that point, you know, it, it clearly looked to to the layperson like the like the finger was bothering him. He was he was sailing short throws. You know, he was missing guys in the flat who were open. Um, they weren't taking shots downfield. And it just didn't look, it didn't look like the Nate Ware that I'd seen uh, a couple of weeks earlier. Um, so I think it's it's part it's part that because you know he was unable to make some of the throws that he would normally make, but also because you know the St. Thomas defense just didn't give uh, Cole Myra a whole lot of room to work. Uh, Nate Ware, I'm not sure if he, you know chose not to run because of his finger. I thought that might have been the case early in the game. He didn't pull it down and run very much earlier. He did a little bit later. Um, you know, he had 15 carries for one yard, and being sacked four times was a big chunk of that. But, you know, I, I just felt like that was um, the the result of St. Thomas keeping them from being able to run the ball effectively, him being forced to go to the air, and, you know, his, uh, his throwing ability not being what it was earlier in the season. You know, that... It's a bad recipe for Oshkosh too to have your, your your star passer have a broken finger in, in a semifinal game, and then to be facing a whose whole you know, this whole St. Thomas plan on defense is, is to make you one dimensional. You know, we wrote a feature about it last week. You, you run game and then make the team have to throw to beat you. Which if if Nate Ware is a hundred percent, maybe that's fine for Oshkosh, but without him being a hundred percent and and not being able to run that that sounds like it was a terrible recipe for for Oshkosh. Did they abandon the running game or or did they just not have any success with it? There was uh you know Cole Myra finishing with seven carries was 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 a shock to me. Yeah, and you know uh, the thing is is that I'm you're the defense guy, so I don't know. It's not it's not in my uh it's not in my DNA to really uh be able to figure that out unfortunately. Um yeah, I think that you know I mean, yeah, you say, and you mentioned it, seven carries. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of opportunity to do much there. Uh, against Bethel, for example, um, Oshkosh went three and out, I think, in its first two possessions, if I remember correctly, or at least, obviously, you know, two quick punts in, in pretty quick succession uh, and, and didn't establish a whole lot. Uh, on Saturday, um, you know, they they got a, uh, they got a, a, they got one first down on their first drive uh, before the punt was blocked. Um, and, uh, you know, then it was, a it was a little while before they got another first down and, and Myra gets a couple of, of runs in there, but mostly, you know, on, on first down, I'm just kind of looking back through the play by play here. Uh, you know, they, they threw on their, uh, they threw in their first play of the game, you know, perhaps to, uh, establish that he was capable of throwing the ball. Uh, he, he completed the first pass of the game. He threw on the first play of the second drive, uh, on the third drive, you know they're already down 21 nothing, and they start with a two-yard run, and then a incomplete pass, and then a sack, and then they punt. So, you know that's that's the first quarter. That's pretty much I pretty much ran down the whole first quarter, and you know Myra got I think basically about two or three carries in that entire time. You know it's 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 kind of it's hard to believe in, in a sense because Oshkosh had done such a good job of. Uh, of falling behind and still sticking with with what got it there, and you know falling behind by double digits in all three playoff games, and and you know maintaining their cool and being able to come back. Um, St. Thomas, it seemed like 
once it got that lead, that you know, the 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 quick touchdown early, and then they made it 14 right away. 16 play, 75 yard drive that takes almost 18 minutes to make it 21 to nothing. Did you feel that the, the air go out of the stadium at that point, or was it St. Thomas was were they in control basically from the start and and never let Oshkosh get anything going? Yeah, you know, the one thing that that, uh, that, that drive did, Keith, and uh, Brenton Braddock, the freshman running back for the time he's talked about in the postgame news conferences, it really wore down the, uh, the Oshkosh defensive, uh, defensive front especially. You know, they were talking about how, how that's a, a line that didn't seem to be rotating in and out too many players, and they really felt like by the end of the drive that uh, St. Thomas was having a lot more success against them than they were earlier in the game. Um, you know, the... The thing about that drive, obviously, is yeah, you know, St. Thomas had come up with, you know, the the one score on the on the uh, special teams recovery and or the fumble that was uh, brought into the end zone, and then there was a, uh, you know, a punt block that was recovered on the 24 yard line. So the you know St. Thomas had gotten 14 points on the board, but they were two you know quick kind of I mean not fluky scores because they had to make plays to make them happen, but you know it wasn't you know big punishing long drive. It wasn't a sustained drive that got either of those points. And if you're on the Oshkosh side. You know that, you know your your team has come back from those, you know each of the last three weeks. That's not a big deal, right? But yeah, absolutely. You 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 roll out then 16 plays for 75 yards. You take up pretty much the entire rest of the uh, of the first quarter, and then go up 21 nothing. And that really it changed the tenor of the game, I think, for some people. But I, I still knew, you know, and they both teams talked about it afterwards. Is that you know they they knew that this was the 21 nothing with you know, 47 minutes to go was was nothing, you know, considering what Oshkosh had done the previous couple of weeks. I think what the difference is, though, is that, you know, Oshkosh was playing the best defensive team that they had played, uh, you know, in the playoffs by a, I think, a, by a significant margin. So I, I think that was one of the one of the biggest differences there. If if Oshkosh hadn't given up two quick touchdowns, it, how much different, of course, it's a different ball game, but how much different of a game do you think it would have been? Oh, absolutely, a much different ball game. Um, you know, if they hadn't, let's say that, for example, that you know they, Oshkosh's, you you combine Oshkosh's first two drives, and then they get off the punt, and St. Thomas has to start back at its own 25 with uh, where are we at about the 12 minute mark of the quarter, the 13 minute mark of the first quarter, uh, with a scoreless game instead of it being you know soon to be 14 nothing. Um, yeah, I think the game is. I think the game is played differently. I don't think St. Thomas does anything different on offense, but I think, you know, Oshkosh would look at that and think, well, we're in the exact same position that we were against Bethel, for example, um, and they would just continue to do what they're doing. And and I don't know if Oshkosh ne necessarily changed its approach, but you know, they just they really never had the football. Uh, you know, if look at the number of uh, plays they had in the first quarter. You know, it's a it's a it's a really small number. Um, you know, it, it's hard to establish anything when you don't have the football. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So we had a, a semifinal that was one versus two on the other side of the bracket. Uh, St. Thomas and, and um, Oshkosh were both in the top five. And, and so these were the, you know, two, you know, four of the top five teams in the country, which is about what you'd expect for, for a semifinal round. But I, I think from a, from a big picture, bird's eye view perspective, whatever you want to call it, nationally, um, people wanted to see Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor play. The brackets didn't allow that. So 
you you spent a lot of time around the St. Thomas team. Why should people be excited to see them take on Mount Union and, and have any hope that it will be a good stag bowl? Well, I guess one of the one of the good things, I guess, if, first of all, is that it's somebody different. You know, someone who's never been to the stag bowl before. Um, you know, if you're a if you're a Division three football fan, you should be excited just because. Uh, you know, we didn't get two different teams, and we got one different team in the championship game. That's a start. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, gives St. Thomas some hope that they can, you know, that, that they could uh, win on Friday night is, you know, they can make a, they can make a lot of teams one-dimensional. If you look at the running backs, the individual guys who have had success against St. Thomas this year, we're pretty much talking about Scotty Williams and uh, Joel Sweeney of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and that's all the way back in week one. The uh, That's a long time ago. Uh, a lot of things changed since then. But Joel Sweeney is a, a pretty quality running back for the Blue Golds. Um, you know, otherwise... You know, if if St. Thomas can uh, you know can take the run game or limit the run game of Mount Union, then you know there's certainly a possibility that that they could actually uh, they could win the championship or, or compete at least make it a good game. You know, um, you know, one of the one of the St. Thomas people asked me after the game uh, asked me said are basically a lot of people saying that that other game should have been the championship game and yeah I mean that's you and I know that's what people are saying and that was what my response was. Um, I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna go in loose. Um, you know, they're a lot of their talk last year was you know keep the family together, play for one more week, and that's you know what a lot of them are saying this year. Um, you know, they weren't. They weren't completely. Uh, you know, they weren't outclassed on the field by Whitewater last year necessarily, but they didn't have a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of options offensively if you took the the primary guy away. Um, and uh, and Glenn Caruso, the head coach, talks about how last year in the national semifinals it was just such an unfamiliar experience for them, you know, being on TV, dealing with you know the extra timeouts, that sort of thing. That you know he felt like he didn't prepare his team very well for that, and you know this year they're at least they were a little more prepared for that, and you know obviously they were also able to play at home, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, St. Thomas hasn't played Mount Union, but they have played one of the you know, one of the two purple powers of the previous seven years. So they at least have a, an idea of what it takes to play at that level. You know, they obviously weren't, uh, they weren't successful in winning that game or even scoring, but you know, they're, uh, they at least have that experience under their belts a little bit, but it's also a very young team. So there are a lot of guys who are playing key roles on this team right now who weren't even on the roster. They were playing high school football when, uh, when St. Thomas played Whitewater last year. So it'll be an, it'll be an interesting matchup. I think uh, obviously one of the keys is going to be, you know, whether Chini Oji or Tyler Erstad or some combination in the St. Thomas secondary can can do anything to slow down Jasper Collins, and if and if they can do that, you know, then what do they do with Chris Denton? Well, and 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 to be honest with you, uh, Julius Morris had a pretty nice playoffs as well. So there, there's a, a, at least three receivers that 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 are trouble for Mountain Union, and and Kevin Burke has has been good too, you know. That's actually, I think the the X's and O's part of it might actually be pretty fun because Mount Union has this dynamic offense, and as long as Kevin Burke is back there distributing the ball, you know Mount Union ha- has a chance to put up some points, and then St. Thomas has this great defense. But you mentioned, you touched on really a couple of reasons I would suspect that uh, that that at least give this game some intrigue. Um, that you know that St. Thomas has a chance. You know, again, this is the number uh, three team in the country. I think three or f- I think they're four, four by our poll. F- yes. Right. 
So yeah, Linfield was three. They're four. Uh, so yeah, the, this is the number four team in the country. So it, you know, you'd expect them to be able to hang with uh, with the number one team in the country. Uh, Glenn Caruso. If you're not familiar at all with St. Thomas, just follow along this week. Get to know him. He's a guy who's been pegged for success as a head coach since um, you know he, since we first since he first came on the radar. He's a um, someone who played for Jim Butterfield at uh, at Ithaca. You know, so he's a D3 guy through and through. He knows what what a championship uh, pedigree is like, um, you know, has has built Saints. I, I think the St. Thomas Rise is, is is a combination of him and a combination of having a, a, a program that's committed to uh, to to supporting athletics, you know, from the administration standpoint, from a financial standpoint. So get to know him, get to know this team a little bit. They, they'll they'll be fun. And, and you mentioned that they'll play loose. Uh, you're right. They're not expected to win. So what you know. What do they have to lose to go down there and, 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 and go have some fun and maybe you knock off Mountain Union? Um, reasons to believe it, it's possible. The last time the Mayak has, has matched up with Mountain Union and gone to Salem thinking they had no chance. Pat, you, you were there. You remember what happened? Uh, 24-6 in Stag Bowl 31 uh, when the St. John's, you know, not just beat Mountain Union, but kind of manhandled them a little bit, especially in the second half of that game. It's... It's certainly not impossible, uh, that's for sure. And, and you're right about, you know, basically uh, St. Thomas football was kind of seen as a sleeping giant when Glenn Caruso took it over. Caruso had, you know, coached for a couple years at McAllister and made McAllister, you know, fairly competitive. And that's a program that, you know, was, was uh, so down in the dumps that in 2001, I believe, they dropped out of the MIAC for football. They couldn't, they couldn't handle uh, you know, playing week in and week out in that conference. So they've been playing an independent schedule ever since. And he actually made them halfway decent. And then he moved, you know, uh, eight blocks, 12 blocks down the street to go over, go take over St. Thomas. And, and St. Thomas is a, you know, a, a, a school that has put a lot of money into facilities, not just athletic facilities, but, um, you know, they've had some big donors fund, uh, some, some general student body buildings as well. They've, uh, you know, they have a, a brand new student center that sits just outside the football stadium. Um, you know, the, they're competitive in a lot of sports. They won the baseball national championship a few years ago, won men's basketball two seasons ago. Uh, women's volleyball won the national championship, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago. Um, football was the program that was that was lagging behind. They were the uh, they were the sore spot uh, and everybody else was seemingly seemingly everybody else was having a whole a whole lot of success. Um, and now football is in a, a situation where they're, you know, just keeping up with everybody else in the department. Practically, that was, you know, one of the I think would have to be one of the first goals when the when Caruso and his crew started. You know, the Stag Bowl. It's been so long since we've seen a first-time team in Salem too, and it's not Glenn Caruso's first time, as he referenced at the at the outset of the podcast. That clip you heard. Uh, you know, he came down there last year. He was, you know, we saw him. Uh, at the Gallardi Trophy ceremony with Fritz Waldvogel, who was one of the finalists, we saw him hang around to game day. You know, sometimes the coaches come in with the with the Gallardi finalists on Thursday and then and then get on out of town. But he stuck around, and and, and I think it was deliberate. He wanted to see if I ever have to bring my team down here, what is it going to be like? And and now he's got that opportunity. But for a first time fan, for St. Thomas fans, if you happen to be tuning in, if you've never been to Salem, Pat, what's your advice for for Taking out, taking it all in. Uh, if it's a, if you're a first time, uh, you know, if it's your first experience in Salem, uh, it's about a, 
an 18 or 19 hour drive from here. Uh, but you know, if you're if you're a student, that might be the way to go. Uh, if you're uh, you know pile five people into a car kind of kind of group uh, and and trade off the driving. But you know, I would say, you know, there are so many things around the stag bowl that's uh, that's related to the stag bowl. You know, maybe you know if you're a student. Maybe there's not necessarily a whole lot of other things to do in Roanoke. If you're uh, if you're coming down with a family, there's you know some things that you can do with the kids and that sort of thing. But if you're coming down as a student, um, you know uh, tailgating all day Friday. Uh, there's the Guardi Trophy ceremony on Wednesday night, or the the team banquet on Thursday. Night. It was probably a would be a a, a better attraction. And just kind of you know the. First of all, the the people in Salem are really friendly. The the Mount Union people, the Mount Union fans, are pretty friendly too. Um, and you know, there's also a whole lot of other people who come to the Stag Bowl on a fairly regular basis who are not connected to Mount Union. They're not connected to Whitewater or Linfield or Mary Harden Baylor. Or anybody who's been to the uh, to the Stag Bowl in the recent past, um, but is this whole kind of Division Three community that's sprouted up at this game around the uh, the Bridgewater College tailgate, the so-called Stone Station that we've uh, referenced a, a couple times over the course of uh, the last few years. Um, and it's just, you know, Division Three is this whole big community and, uh, you know, people in Saint, at St. Saint Thomas uh, and up here in Minnesota were kind of geographically on a bit of the outer edge in that, uh, you know, there's that big vast wasteland between basically the the Minnesota Dakota's border and then you know Washington state and Oregon where uh, and California where in mountain time there's nobody who plays division 3 football and there's only one division 3 school at all um so we don't get to see necessarily a whole lot of diversity in this part of the country in terms of other division 3 schools and other programs that come on down get to know you know get to see what the rest of Division Three is about. And this is not just for St. Thomas fans. It's really for everybody, uh, especially, you know, if you're within, you know, four hours or five hours drive in the mid-Atlantic and in the in the South Atlantic, you know, part of the country. Come to Salem. I don't think you'll regret it. I think uh, you will enjoy seeing the Division Three football national championship game. Pat, you mentioned, too, the, the, the community that sprouted up around the um – you know, the tailgate in Salem, the pregame, and, and, and because it's a night kickoff on Friday, there'll be plenty of time to tailgate and have an experience that, that's, that's unrelated just to the game. A lot of those people are going to be rooting for St. Thomas because they represent the rest of Division Three, who are all the teams that, that can't beat Mount Union or haven't often beaten Mount Union. Those, you know, they embrace the other team sometimes. And then Salem, all the people that, that live in Salem and Roanoke and are so used to Mount Union coming down to Salem that they've gotten friendly with and, and, and have adopted Mount Union as their home team. So you got some people from the city who love, already love Mount Union. And then you have some people who will be in town, uh, you know, embracing St. Thomas just for the simple fact that they're not Mount Union. They're, they're not Whitewater. Um, there, there are going to be some natural fan bases and some natural friendships to make, uh, you know, again, in the parking lot at the tailgate, uh, if you're at the hotels the night before, if you happen to be staying at the same place, it'll be hard to tell everybody apart because everybody will be wearing purple again. But, um, uh, you know, that's just uh, part of the price you pay for coming down to Salem. I guess you got to have some purple on if you want to play in the stag bowl. Well, and, and who doesn't love an underdog, right? I mean, if, if you're not a Mount Union fan, I suspect you probably are rooting for St. Thomas at this point in the season. 
And, and but this is where I, I point out the same thing I pointed out last week that these Mountain Union seniors, unless there's a fifth year guy in there that I don't know about, they've never won a championship. The past three years, they've been to the Stag Bowl, lost to Whitewater, and so they're hungry. This, these guys on this roster don't want to be the one class from Mountain Union that never wins a championship. And if they experience it, they're going to have the same emotions that the St. Thomas team will have to, to the degree which they, you know, this championship is, experience is all new to them. It won't be new to Larry Karras, but a lot of his coaching staff is new. He turned over a lot of coaches uh, over this past year just for, you know, for different reasons, guys moving on to, to other opportunities and certain things. He still has the, uh, his son Vince as defensive coordinator and some of the older coaches have, have come back on the staff. Um, but it's a, a lot of new guys who haven't experienced this on the Mountain Union side. And uh, so, so for them, it's new. For St. Thomas, obviously, as you mentioned, Pat, the, the school has won championships before, but football has never stood atop the mount, so to speak. And um, it, it'll be a cool experience either way it goes. You know, it'd be about 11 o'clock, I guess, by the time the game ends, fireworks going off. And uh, it, it's, I think it's a lot of fun, even if you don't have a, a team in it. It's, um, you know, it's the, the, the number one game of the season. And, and I think it is for a reason. You remember, Pat, we haven't had a bad stag bowl, bad being a game that was uncompetitive in the second half. We haven't had that since 2002. And so St. Thomas, they have a little bit to live up to in terms of, uh, of bringing a quality team down to Salem. But again, they're, they're a team that's blown through the, the MIAC, the best, one of the best conferences in the country all season. I don't think they'll be blown off the field by Mount Union. What's your thought on on? Just generally, how does St. Thomas and Mount Union match up strength-wise? Well, you know, I I think we've talked about it a little bit. The uh, the 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 run defense, especially the front seven for uh, for St. Thomas, is is really the the strength of this team. Um, you know, to to talk about the offense a little bit. You know, we we've talked about it in weeks past, but um, Caruso talks about uh, there's a there's a point in the game. Uh, where there's a where there's a I think a, a break in the action a TV timeout at, or any rate maybe a, a full timeout um, it is you know these timeouts in the with the television were pretty long so you're you're standing on the sidelines waiting for the waiting for the guy with the proverbial red hat to come off the field so you can start playing again and he he steps into that into that huddle and looks at his eleven guys and six of those eleven guys, which he's about to send out on a on a crucial third down and short, or even a fourth down and short, they're freshmen. He's got two freshman defensive linemen, a couple or offensive linemen, a couple of freshman uh, receivers, a freshman running back, and then maybe a freshman tight end or something like that going out there. And you know, it is a it's a young crew, and it's not the most individually talented uh, St. Thomas team that we've seen. You know, there's no Fritz Waldvogel. I'm not sure there's a Colin Tobin, you know, one of those uh, star running backs. Um, you know, there might or might not be a Tony Dana, you know, the linebacker who was our West Region Defensive Player of the Year last year. Um, but, you know, but as a team, as a as a unit, they are so much more balanced uh, than they have been before. You know, last year, you mentioned it already, you could take away Fritz Waldvogel from the St. Thomas offense and they could do almost nothing because nobody ran against Whitewater last year. And if you uh, if you take Waldvogel away, there was almost nothing else that that they could do offensively. But you know, this year it's so much. Uh, it seems so much more cohesive. It's there's a lot of different options for Matt O'Connell to throw to. And on the defensive side, um, 
I think I'm just going to let Mike Valisano, the linebacker, talk about it rather than me try to describe it. Coming in the game, we knew Oshkosh was a very talented, very dynamic offense. They can take a lot of different weapons in a lot of different ways. So we knew our best asset was going to be our team defense this week. Everyone does their assignment. You don't try to be Hercules out there. Don't try to do someone else's job. You do your job. You fit your gap. And that's what we pride ourselves on is being a team defense. Once you do your job, you get to the ball. 11 has to the ball. So that, that was our emphasis, you know, team defense, doing your responsibility and getting to the ball. So we heard Mike Valisano echo some of Coach Caruso's concepts, you know, to, to play as a team. We talk about St. Thomas as a team without any real, real shining stars because all the guys shine, you know, they shine as one. And that's something that that is definitely comes from the top. It comes from Coach Caruso. And I think St. Thomas may not win the Stag Bowl, but I bet they'll go down there and they'll rep represent themselves in the Mayak well. And we may be seeing... The, the birth of the next dynasty. Coach Caruso is not even 40, all right? Um, he, he, two years, he turns 40 in, in 2014. So he's already, he's got seven years of experience now as a D3 head coach. He's a, D, a former D3 player, had been a couple other places, North Dakota State and South Dakota. Um, and, and so he, he's, he's maybe the next great D3 coach. And for him to bring a team down to Salem, you know, the, the brackets were, were, favorable for St. Thomas, but at the same time, they, they still had to go through uh, Oshkosh, uh, Hobart, Elmhurst. They, they had to beat some, you know, I'll throw St. Norbert in there. They had to beat, you know, you don't, you don't go to the Stag Bowl without beating four good teams. And uh, I think we may be seeing the, the, the birth of the next D3 uh, dynasty. If not dynasty, maybe great program because there's a, certainly a handful of teams that are up in that mix with St. Thomas. But, you know, Coach Karras isn't going to coach forever, and who knows what Mount Union's going to be if he ever steps down. And Coach Caruso, if, if he's at 38 right now, he's gonna, he could be around for a very long time. And so you may want to peek into the Stag Bowl just to get a look at St. Thomas so you can say you saw them before they were the next great D3 program. Pat, what's your thought on the, the coaching matchup between Caruso and Karras and how these two guys contrast? Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, first of all, Caruso, you mentioned he's a he's a young guy. He's got three he's got three young kids too. He, he doesn't seem really interested in moving up to Division Two or up you know trying to get a Division One coordinator or position coach job because once you're in that life, you tend to bounce around and you spend you know three years here and, and three years there and, and you know you're moving your kids all over the place. And he doesn't he seems kind of resistant to doing that. You know, there's no. There's no D1 FCS schools in Minnesota at all, so there's not a, a natural jump there, and he's kind of done Division Two already. So I don't, I don't know if uh, I just don't know if moving up is attractive to him at this point in his career. Maybe you know, maybe later. I don't know. You know, one of the things it's a, it's an interesting contrast between the two of them because you know if you if you think back to the to the clip we played at the beginning of the podcast where Glenn Caruso is you know is 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 talking really emotionally about his team and he says you know he's a crier. Um, yeah, I don't. We don't see that from from Larry Karras necessarily. You know, I'm I'm sure it happens, but you and I don't get to see it. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Uh, you know, it's it's very businesslike. It's very even keel. Um, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you know, you know, Caruso's the uh, the the emotional guy out of the two, and uh, and that sort of thing. Well, uh, it depends how you define the word emotional, I guess, because Coach Karras is very emotional on the sidelines you know the tales of him behind closed doors 
uh, when he when he needs to to fire the team up, I think he's very emotional. And, and there's certainly been some things he's he's taken personally over the years and 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 uses as motivation. But at the, you're very right about the business like approach. Very classy in in public. Uh, Coach Karras is probably not someone who will start off the press conference with a story about how he was in church and and saw a Proverbs 31-20 or 21-31 and then that, he thought that was going to be the, the score uh, of, of a semifinal game. That's not Coach Karras, but we've gotten to know him a little bit over the years because he's, his team is in Salem more often than it's not. And he does give us the glimpses of, of that side of him. You know, he's someone I remember a few years ago talking about you know, we're on the field, you know, with the Stag Bowl getting ready to start and, and uh, talking about his daughter who, who played volleyball for Wittenberg. And, and, and this, that was the first time he ever got to go to Salem and actually hang out in Salem because he, he was always there, uh, you know, for business or, or asking me how my kids were doing because he remembered uh, one time we were on the phone and, and, and um, you know, my son interrupted. You know, he's, he's, a, he's got a human side to him, but I don't know if he lets everybody see it because he's so, he's so, so focused that uh, when he's in Salem, you know, he's there to win. He doesn't like losing that game. I, I, you know, some coaches are all about the a, the experience was great. Karis, he'll tell you that, but he wants to win that game, and they haven't won it now in uh, in three years. And I think he, I would be willing to bet he loves the senior class, and he would love to see Nick Driscoll and and Jasper Collins and and uh, Charles Diesel and those guys. He would love to see them go out with a championship. And, uh, you know, he's he's an interesting and co- complex character. Coach Crusoe's probably going to be the guy who who um, wears his emotions on his sleeve and who's a great quote and, and who's someone that'll be uh, a lot of fun to get to know this week. And I know he would probably coach Crusoe would probably hate that we make the story a little bit about him. But I think so much of this St. Thomas, this particular team is um making it the, the sum of its parts is greater than the than the individuals i know i'm botched that but you know what i'm trying to say i i think one of the uh i think one of the interesting things that i've noticed you know in the course of talking to him over the last year or so is you know he had a guy who was uh, a finalist for the gallardi trophy you know the gallardi trophy named after john gallardi who's the head coach of st thomas's you know bitter arch rival a, uh, a program that St. Thomas had a lot of trouble overcoming. They hadn't beaten them f- between you know 1993 and whatever it was, 2009 or 2010. Uh, I can say to him, I can ask him a question about that in- invokes the Gallardi Trophy, and he will respond by saying the National Player of the Year. You know, he he won't mention the Gallardi <laughs> Trophy by name because the coach, because the guy who was named after is the arch rivals coach. He he he's he's and, and that's what's fun. I think people respond to him. People like to play for him, and uh, you know we'll get a chance to see that when we get down to uh, to, to Salem. Now you mentioned the Gallardi Trophy. We still call it that, and uh, especially with Coach Gallardi uh, stepping down this year, it, it, you know it, it's it's um, I guess it's not the last chance to honor him, but I bet it'll be extra special to win this particular Gallardi Trophy. What, what do you think about the four guys who are nominated, especially the, the, the guy who had a chance to play in Salem and now has to go to Salem uh, w- without a game this week? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. So the, the, the uh, Oshkosh half of the postgame news conference, obviously like most uh, of the you know, losing teams' postgame news conferences are, it was a pretty somber affair. Um, you know, it's kind of half wanted to ask Wera about going to Salem without without the rest of the team but um you know I figure that that's a question that we could ask on Wednesday uh you know at the ceremony or before the ceremony it just didn't seem like the 
the timing was right. Uh, I really think it's it's Wera or Williams. Um, you know, I I'm disappointed that uh, Nick Driscoll wasn't one of the four finalists. I can see where uh, uh, Zach Outenreep has the the uh, the great career numbers. He is the uh, all-time interceptions leader in Division Three history. But you know, I, I think that um, you know to the committee, obviously that number stood out, and you know the committee probably just doesn't understand that. Uh, Mount Union defensive guys in general don't always put up great numbers because, you know, they're playing two and a half quarters of the game or something like that. And the, the other yep. team is going three and out. They're just not a whole lot of tackle opportunities. They're not a whole lot of opportunities to break up passes or intercept passes. Um, you know, we've always had to take Mount Union defensive numbers with a grain of salt when we're doing uh, All-American teams too because, you know, the the best guy on the team might have – 27 tackles over the course of a season and i think yeah. that i think that sorry i i should finish the thought um i do but i do think it's between Wera and williams and to be honest with you um you know I, I don't know where the other two end up pulling but i think that if we had a final four in this of Wera, williams nick driscoll and javits jones that would be a fantastic group and it would be really wide open but i think it's really between the other two well, I'll be doing those interviews that you mentioned on Wednesday, and I'm excited to meet all four guys. I think getting to, getting to have a conversation with them and 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 getting you know they do the montage. That stuff is real cool in, in terms of just because those guys represent all of our experiences as far as D3 players or players that we've known or rooted for. And, and uh, you know, Luke Heinsohn, uh his story is pretty neat. Being a guy who plays football. And, and plays lacrosse and, and, you know, was the kicker, you know, kicks a game winning field goal. But he really he was a, he was a star running back and and, uh, you know, has to maintain these academics. And you talk about uh, out and read. I thought the you know, great thing about Scotty Williams and Nate Ware is that these guys, when they committed to Elmhurst and, and Wisconsin Oshkosh, it wasn't because they were going to have a, a chance at the. Uh, or, or they weren't playoff caliber teams at the right. time those guys committed and they helped build them into those teams. So it'll be it'll be fun to ask them some of those questions. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, as far as the, the Gallardi committee, it, it's true. You know, some of the guys on the committee are like you and I diehards, watch games every week, eat up all this stuff. And then some of the, the people on the committee are, are past winners. Of, of of the Gallardi Trophy, some are people with a with a a farther D three connection. You know whether it's like Billy White Shoes Johnson or or Jack Bogachek who used to who used to cover all the Stag Bowls in Salem. You know, and I, I don't know how much those votes are influenced by just what's in the in the packet that we get. How much of those votes are influenced by um, some of the things that you and I see when we watch players every week. And that doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make one way right or one way wrong. It just, that kind of sometimes explains why um, certain, certain people, you know, quarterback numbers, running back numbers, I probably tend to always uh, garner more attention. But at the same time, the Gallardi trophy is the only major trophy that I know of that's given, that's been given to a safety that's been given to an offensive lineman. So, um, you know, it's, it's anybody's, uh, I guess it's not anybody's game. I think I agree with you that it's probably Ware or Williams, but you got to tune in on Wednesday to find out. And I believe we are going to go on the air at 7:45 p.m. Eastern time, but uh, we'll uh, we'll correct that if necessary. Uh, uh, Frank Rossi and I will anchor our uh, presentation, our show, and then Keith McMillan, as uh, he mentioned, Keith will be interviewing each of the four finalists on the stage. 
Uh, and then you will find out when we find out who wins the 2012 Gilardi Trophy. And that's what I think one of the greatest things is, you know, this will be the, the third year that's happened. And, and this is what makes an award big time is when you can have uh, a presentation, you can bring in multiple people, and you're not just, uh, you know, handing someone a trophy at halftime of a basketball game in January or you know, bringing one guy in to have uh, to have a luncheon. This is really a this is really a, a great uh, a great event now. Yeah, the the J Club and the City of Salem have really have taken a lot of steps to make to make this a professional event. And, and the NCAA too. We have to give them some credit too. The NCAA as well has has they've done a nice job of making this something that's a watchable event. It's not just an announcement that you make. Uh, it's something that you, you really can, whether you have a, somebody from your team is in it or not, you could actually sit there for an hour and, and listen to these guys talk and not be bored. And, and, and I think that's one of the places that we want to get with some of the, the all-star games and some of the other surrounding events that are going on in D3. We want them to sort of match that, that level that Salem is putting forth with the Stag Bowl and that the J-Club and the NCAA and Salem are putting forth with the Gallardi Trophy to really make it something that respects and honors how important D3 is to the people who play it, participate in it, and follow it. The uh, Speaking of all-star games, the D3 Senior Classic is now one of several games. I think it's in his third year, maybe it's fourth year, uh, playing in Salem. Um, you know, I know that the that the guys who get to play in that game just in, enjoy the heck out of it. They have a fantastic experience. And I know that, um, you know, from uh, being kind of more closely involved with the uh, the basketball senior all-star game because that's a that game takes place at the final four and we're able to attend it whereas this one is not uh, part of the same week and it's hard to hard to get a feel for it but you know those guys just you know f form a bond and have friendships that you know will will go on long into their lives I'm sure I think that's one of the that might be the best outcome from this game because the the games themselves are not necessarily all that great I'm guessing well, it's not even that they're not, not great, but it's just hard to have a rooting interest in the north or the south. You know, you just kind of root for the, the guys you know in the game. And, and, and for us, uh, I thought they, the, they did a great job this year, the, the Senior Classic did, of attracting some real top-notch talent. You know, you have the, the four best teams still playing on the field the same weekend, so you can't get guys from Mount Union and, uh, and Mary Harden-Baylor. In, in St. Thomas and Oshkosh, but it didn't. I mean, the names in the game were guys we knew and, and had heard of over the course of the season. Whether they're they're you know people we know because we keep in touch with them on on Twitter and they they are sort of the mouthpiece for their team, like uh, like John Lavelle from from Delaware Valley is a good example of somebody like that, or somebody we got to know a little bit. Um, Rizzolo was another player who we who, who I, I got to know a little bit just through Twitter because. Um, uh, FEU Florham and, and William Patterson and all those teams had canceled their games um, because of Hurricane uh, Sandy. And so there were some guys like that who were tweeting about the game. And then there were players, you know, from Sol Ross State who had been putting up big numbers. And uh, I, I thought they, they did a good job of attracting quality players. And, Pat, you mentioned that that all-star experience is always a good experience. It's in Salem. It's one week closer to the stack goal now. So they're able to attract some some more players who were able to play in the playoffs. But uh Still, still some work to go as far as making it a, a premier event the way that, that um, the Stag Bowl and the Gallardi Trophy are. And, and that's what I like about the Gallardi Trophy and the Stag Bowl is they never say, well, what we did last year was good enough. They're always trying to add something better to make the experience better for, uh, for, for D3 fans. Yeah, this year's D3 Senior Classic, definitely uh, definitely great talent pool. Uh, the production of it seems like it has been, has been better in the past, but 
Um, but the the guys around the field, that was a that was a really good group, and there were not a whole lot of guys, you know, playing key roles in the game who you look at and go, why is that guy playing? And I think that there's, a, I think you could say that that's happened before. So that's definitely a step forward, and you know, maybe some one of these six or seven now all-star games that involve division three guys will uh will step forward and and really turn itself into a premier event as well to join what else uh goes on in division three so what's left for this week well stag bowl 40 on friday night seven o'clock uh shortly after seven o'clock it will be a kickoff eastern time between st thomas and mount union uh, you could watch it on ESPNU, and I would suggest that you watch on ESPNU and turn down the sound and listen to Keith and I call the game, because you know we're the guys who follow Division Three, and we actually know you know what Division Three football is about, and you know the names of the guys and that sort of thing. It's, it comes as second nature to us. So we'll have a, a a link for the audio. We'll also have a I think a two-hour pregame show, a video pregame show live from the Salem Stadium tailgating parking lot. We'll get uh, you will find out who the is on the D3Football.com All-American team. That's one of the the centerpieces of our pregame coverage, and we'll uh, you know we'll talk to fans from both sides and kind of give you the preview of the game and you know see what's going on at the tailgates and that sort of thing. Um, Keith mentioned, of course, the Gillardi Trophy, and that is our broadcast uh, produced by uh, Dave McHugh, who's become our production guy extraordinaire at d3sports.com. I expect that to be another uh, great show, and I know we're uh, planning on doing uh, some more things with production this year that we haven't been able to do in the past, so you do that. Uh, Thursday night is the team banquet so if you're coming down uh you'll want to set aside some time for that and then also we'll have plenty of coverage throughout the week uh we have a sit down interview with glenn caruso we'll have feature stories on each team uh keith and i are going to do a, a video podcast from salem on thursday uh so we will uh give you some uh our, our latest thoughts talk about what's going on and that sort of thing um as we get you closer and closer to kickoff and then of course you know long pre-game show and kickoff and post-game show and final around the nation podcast and wrap up the season and hey 2012 has been pretty good yeah and and you know it's going to end with somebody purple on top but uh it's been a fun ride and, and sometimes you know even if if mount union wins another one you got to remember there's the 239 teams that played this season uh 32 playoff teams so so a lot a lot of good came of this season and you know there was some bad in this season too and we'll, we'll talk about it uh you mentioned that that last po podcast we wrap up the season uh i'll write a a, a, a final uh, around the nation column year in review too that should go up over the weekend and uh and, and i'm looking forward to this this one last weekend you know the season is long it, it can be exhausting for players for coaches and, and for us as well but at least we get to wrap it up with a bang and have a good time in Salem before we uh, head into the holidays and, and you dive headfirst into basketball. Right now you're like like up to your waist in basketball and then still in, in football. But uh, come enjoy one more weekend of football, Pat. Uh, I'll do my best. If you're if you're still uh, haven't booked a flight to Salem, uh, flights into Roanoke are kind of expensive, maybe hard to come by. Uh, I would recommend looking at Greensboro Airport. I would recommend looking at Washington Dulles. That's uh, IAD for you uh, airport code fans. Uh, Washington Reagan National DCA is a is a reasonable option as well. Um, you know, I think Raleigh Durham RDU is a as a possibility. Um, you know, there are there are 
uh, major airport or major airlines that fly into Lynchburg, Virginia, which is not too far from Roanoke as well. So, you know, don't feel like, uh, you know, you, you can't get there because you can't fly into the one airport. Uh, every one of those other ones that I mentioned is, depending on your, you know, driving time, uh, your personal driving habits, but within three and a half to four hour drive uh, from Salem. And it is, uh, it is worth the effort, especially if you have a team playing in the game. You, uh, you need to come down to this game. Uh, if you're a St. Thomas fan, you know, you're going to see something you've never seen before, your team playing uh, for the national championship in football. And if you're a Mountain Union fan, you don't need my advice as to how to get there. I'm guessing you could just ask, you know, someone in your uh, social circle. They could probably tell you how to get there. So that's the Around the Nation podcast sponsored by the City of Salem, uh, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale at www.salemciviccenter.com. And uh, if you're a... Uh, Mountain Union is the home team, so if you're a Mountain Union fan, ask for tickets on the home side. And if you're a St. Thomas fan, tickets on the visitor's side. And if you're a, a neutral fan, you know, take your pick. But just come on down. Come on down to Stag Bowl 40, and Keith and I will be there, and we hope to see you there as well.